Hello and welcome back to the Offshore Europe podcast live from the wood stand here at Offshore Europe in Aberdeen. I'm Eamon Collins uh, and I'm hosting uh, this podcast which is going to focus on regional approaches to net zero. So we all know that across the globe there's consensus that we need to get to net zero but how we get there, the pace at which we get there and some of the solutions deployed will look very different on a country and a regional basis. To get into that topic I'm delighted to be joined by two distinguished guests. We've got Dan Carter, President of Decarbonisation at Wood, and Andy Brooks, Director of New Ventures at the North Sea Transition Authority here in the UK. Gents, thank you both very much for joining us. Welcome. Thanks, Simon. Looking forward to it. So as I mentioned, we're here in Aberdeen, so it feels pertinent to start the discussion uh, on the UK. There are probably a couple of areas that I want to get into. The first, maybe the drive towards a net zero basin, uh, and then the second, the industrial clusters programme, with a particular focus on CCUS and hydrogen. Andy, I'm, uh, I'm going to start with yourself. So obviously one of the kind of primary roles of the NSTA is to hold industry accountable around the emissions reduction targets. I know you just recently published your emissions monitoring report. So give us a sense of some of the headlines from that report, if you could. Uh, yeah, that, no problem. So um, the emission monitoring report was published a couple of weeks ago, which is all available on our website if you want to go and have a look at it. I uh, highly recommend that you do. And basically what it shows is that the UK CS has reduced emissions uh, for the third consecutive year. Um, whilst it's quite a mild reduction in 3% year-on-year uh, in 2022, overall it's 23% reduction in overall emissions from, from UK platforms since tw- 2018, which is the benchmark year. Um, and where we see the real um, uh, improvements there is we're actually redu- reduced uh, flaring by 50% and methane emissions by 40% since, since 2018. So it's really encouraging. Um, we're certainly on track to meet the first two targets within the North Sea transition deal. Um, the third target, the 2030 target, I think we need to, to, to work uh, harder on holding industry to account on some of the bigger things that they need to do to get there, like platform electrification, things like that. But certainly on an operational basis and reducing emissions in flaring and venting, we're certainly on the right track. Andy, what, some other interest, what are the measures there? Is that just scope one emissions, scope one and two, or does it include an element of three as well? So it's all scope one. So it's basically the flaring and venting directly from offshore platforms is what we measure. That's what's in the in the deal, and that's what we 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 benchmark against from the 2018 baseline. Dan, Andy's given us a really nice overview there in terms of sort of some of the progress that's being made around areas like flaring and methane abatement. Does that reflect what you're hearing and seeing from clients and within the market? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the impact of methane abatement is very strong just because it has such a strong climate change impact. You have approximately 20 times CO2. It's also key from an operability point of view as well, right? If you're not flaring, you're not emitting methane, you're turning that into product that provides real value. I think the other area that I'd expect to see a little bit more of in the short term moving around forward as well is around energy efficiency. So improving energy efficiency, reducing fuel consumption, improving operability and downtime of assets, all of those things have an immediate payback as well as having an impact on reducing carbon intensity of production in the North Sea assets. Could you, just to build on that set, so when what we saw from the emissions monitoring report is that 78% of offshore platforms actually had a reduction in their emissions from last year. And that's not just flaring and venting per se, it is that operational efficiency, making things work, work more efficiently. Um, and some may say that a lot of that comes from platforms shutting down or going into decommissioning, but actually the data shows that around 60% of that uh, improvement comes directly from those operational things that people are doing to make their assets work more efficiently. And ultimately, they then get to sell that gas to market and, and we get a benefit from that as well. 
it's one of the reasons why I was interested in, you know, clarifying that was just scope one missions in terms of measurement, because you start to look at some of these mechanisms, improving digital or remote operation of some facilities, reducing POB, and you're also changing, reducing those scope two and three emissions that come along with that. Yet we're maybe at the moment not quite measuring or capturing the value of that. I know it's not in the North Sea transition deal, yeah. but I think we're finding a lot of our clients maybe aren't capturing that in relation to their own ESG goals and progress against those as well. Yeah, so I think clearly from what you said there, Andy, we're making a lot of progress on that journey towards a net zero basin. Work to do still before 2030, but you know, there's good momentum in that space. The other area where it strikes me that there's good momentum is uh, all around the industrial clusters program. And I know earlier in the earlier this year, the NSTA had issued 21 CO2 storage licenses. Talk to us a little bit about that and, and why that's an important element of the UK's net zero journey. Yeah, well, I think it's hugely important. The The UK is estimated to have about 78 gigatons of capacity of, of storage in the in the seas around the UK. And that, if you put it in perspective, that's equivalent to the entire emissions from the UK since the Industrial Revolution, which is a huge number, right? But that number is only a number on paper, and we need to get out there and start exploring for these uh, stores, characterizing them, understanding what that number really means. And that's the importance of running a licensing round. So it allows us to put out into the market 21 licenses, as you say, including the six that we're already stewarding, most of which are in those track one, track two clusters that already exist. What that allows us to do is then hold those licensees to account on the work programs that they've put in place, which will include going to shoot seismic, potentially drilling appraisal wells, and start building that portfolio of opportunities to meet the, 20, the 2030 target of 30 me uh, megatons of storage within the UK. Because what we know from oil and gas, from our experience in oil and gas, is not all of these stores will be successful. And we have to accept that not, not all of them would be successful. Yep. Um, in fact, in percentage-wise, the majority will not be as successful as they expect. So what we need to have is that portfolio of opportunities, that taxi rank, if you will, for, so that we have, especially in those industrial clusters where you're collecting uh, CO2 from large industrial sources, you need to have that portfolio of opportunities to, to store it so you have that bench strength so that you can store the CO2 that's coming from those clusters. So that, that's why it's important. It's really important on that journey to net zero uh, as part of what we do. So. I think obviously the offshore storage license is a, is a key part of the jigsaw, but Dan, there's also a piece on the, the onshore terminals and the infrastructure to kind of support that. So where are some of the areas where you'd like to see, you know, even more focus as we start to build more pace? Well, I think the key thing for me is exactly that word pace, Eamon, is we, we need to get on with it. We need to make sure track one, track two within the UK are delivered. The really positive side, you know, Andy's already said it, we need to have the infrastructure in place so that the emitters have somewhere to store their CO2. And what we're seeing around the track one clusters in particular at the moment is it's not just the core projects, say that the power station with CCS and net zero T side, or the hydrogen plants around the high net cluster. We're starting to see secondary and tertiary emitters look to plan their own carbon capture projects because they know that that infrastructure will now be in place and they'll be able to tie into that moving forward. So that's really key, not just in 2030, but in getting beyond those 2030 goals on, or further on the pathway to net zero. Before we leave the UK, uh, Dan, you mentioned there the importance of that sort of uh, shared infrastructure. And obviously there's a big piece around that, which is almost the, the regulation around it. So there was an announcement this week on the around the NSTA being the regulator for the hydrogen transport and storage. Could you talk a little bit more about that for us? 
Yeah, so that's uh, a conclusion of a consultation that government put out earlier in the year, and that's concluded that we will become the regulator for the transportation and storage of hydrogen, which makes a lot of sense. And we've got a huge amount of experience in, in permitting both the storage licenses of, of, uh, of gas and petroleum and the, and the pipeline networks. So it's, it's another part of the jigsaw. Um, it builds on the expertise that we already have and the processes and tools that we already have to be able to very easily expand that remit. And I think if you, if you think in terms of hydrogen, we talk about industrial clusters. One of the things that, that we've been working well uh, on is the is supporting the Bacton, um, the, the, the Bacton Energy Hub, which is focusing not on industrial clusters, but is in focusing more on hydrogen as a way to decarbonize because they recognize they don't have the industrial hub to capture CO2, but they might have enough storage to be able to create blue hydrogen capture the co2 and then distribute that hydrogen so hydrogen is definitely has a part to play i think everything has a part to play and it's really great that uh, that we're now going to be the the uh, the uh, tr the uh, licensing authority for that for sure fantastic news look well, i want to move on now to the u.s because it feels or it strikes me that since the the release of the inflation reduction act in august last year that the u.s has kind of moved to the front of the queue or is the very front there when it comes to momentum behind the energy transition and net zero and an investment into that space as well. Um, I'll start with you, Dan, just in terms of what are you seeing in the market in terms of the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act stimulating investment from clients? Yes, we've seen a tremendous amount of activity and interest over the 18 months now since the Inflation Reduction Act was first published. But I think it's important to know that the Inflation Reduction Act isn't the only driver in the US. We've also got Department of Energy CapEx funding under hydrogen hubs, industrial carbonisation, direct air capture as an example. And what the projects are in development now can actually take benefit from is both. So they can get CapEx funding from the DOE and they can get tax breaks from the Inflation Reduction Act to help with their overall cash flow moving forward. And the thing I think that's really benefited from the IRA is the clarity. So if you store a ton of CO2 and you comply with the regulations around unionization, apprenticeship development of the workforce, you know that you can get a tax credit of $85 a ton. Those metrics are also starting to get to the level where with the advances we've seen in technology and scale on the CCS side, they get into a point where they will start to repay the investment in those projects and opportunities as well. So I really like the clarity around it. There's probably a little bit less clarity in terms of how that's going to be implemented at the moment as those projects start to move more into the design phase or into delivery. Um, but I think that's why the US has really stolen the march. It's ambition and it's clarity. Yeah. I think, uh, Andy, I'm interested in your reflections, obviously, as sort of uh, working for a regulator. You work closely yeah. with government on the policy side of things. What are your reflections on the, the Inflation Reduction Act and the policies coming out of the US? Yeah, I think that the Americans should be rightly proud of that investment in, in green and renewable energy. And we see encouraging signs from the UK government um, of the improvement or the increase in funding for CFD. There's another 20 billion on the table for investment in, in CCS, including the announcement of track, track two. So there's encouraging signs, but obviously there's things that, that we can learn. I think the reality is, is that we see there's a huge opportunity in the, in the UK. We have a a very integrated approach to oil and gas. We've talked about CCS, we've got hydrogen coming down the path. We've got an excellent and really strong supply chain. So we have that competitive advantage to a certain degree. And what we need to do is make sure we can take advantage and pull that investment into the UK 
and ultimately that will help us bit for energy security purposes and the transition but yeah there's always things that you can learn from elsewhere and i'm sure there's things that they can learn from us as well for sure yeah i think come back to that point around around clarity again so i think there's still it's a little bit murky around how things will actually work in the uk and if you compare to the us you know we've done the doe will fund up to 50 percent of a project's capex to a limit we've got clarity around those figures in the inflation reduction act i think for the uk to really move forward we need to get that level of clarity particularly in track one you know the track one clusters are going to take fid decisions probably q2 q3 next year so that clarity needs to be in place in order to enable that positive id and to make sure we're going to hit our schedule targets for delivery as well yeah, and, uh, and I think that's a fair point. Um, I think, you know, we work with other regulators, the industry, and with government. Um, there's a fiscal review ongoing um, in in the month. So I think I think that hopefully some more clarity will come. Um, I think the track one and track two processes are 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 there, and and they obviously got investment. And obviously we need to look at what comes after track two because clearly we need a build out from that. Um, ultimately, the industry, certainly the CCS industry, next needs to move from that kind of regulated model into a merchant model but it's it's early days i mean we haven't we haven't been out there we haven't explored we haven't drilled wells we haven't got all the technology i was listening to the podcast earlier it's talking about the challenges around the technology and the system approach to things so there's a lot to be done and uh, i'm like as i say we can learn from them and i'm sure there's things that we'll do that that they can learn from us that's a key point for me as well really is now the learning that we need only comes from starting to implement and deliver the projects we can't do any more from empirical data or interpretation it needs to be delivery and operation indeed and where and where we will play our part is we have work programs within those licenses that we've issued and we will hold those licensees to account and ultimately that is what will drive the understanding certainly from a transportation and storage perspective obviously we're not the regulator for the onshore part but yeah that's that's where we'll play our part to make sure we drive it forward and in the quickest way possible I want to move us on now, obviously, as well. The, the reason that I want to look at is the Middle East. Um, as someone who's lived out there for a few years, you know, one of the things that always struck me about countries out there is that they're they're excellent at selling a compelling national vision. I'm thinking of something like, you know, Vision 2030 in Saudi. They've got the capital to invest behind it. So I'm interested in how they're thinking about the, the, the net zero journey. I'll, I'll start with yourself, Dan. It strikes me that they're looking at it not just through an environmental lens, but also in support of their broader economic diversification focus. Is that a first assessment? Yeah, I think that's a very fair point, Eamon. And I think you know, that comment around diversity is diversifying economies away from just oil or gas export to secondary tertiary industries. But what's changed recently is developing those secondary or tertiary industries while also reducing the carbon intensity of them. Yeah, we didn't work today looking at petrochemicals projects in the Middle East, but how we decarbonize those petrochemical projects potentially so those products carry a premium on the international export market or they can be a defensive measure against measure against things like the CBAMs, the cross-border adjustment mechanisms that the EU and other economies are potentially looking to bring in over time. On the other hand, it's also about a continued license to operate, right? So without oil and gas, a lot of the Middle Eastern economies would really, really struggle. So alongside that diversity, they also need to continue to produce increase the production of that oil and gas and be able to export it in order to maintain the sort of pace of economic development and industrialization that we've seen in the middle east in the last 20 to 30 years i think uh if we're, if we're focusing on the middle east andy i guess one of the areas that we can't not discuss would be cop 28 which is coming up later this year 
And I guess from your perspective, you know, as, as someone who, again, sort of sits close to the policy piece, what are some of the outcomes you'd like to see coming out of COP28, which, you know, a lot of people are describing as the first energy COP in terms of kind of driving both that accelerated pace around the net zero journey, not just in the UK, but also globally? Yeah, I think as a, as a global citizen, citizen, personally, I'd like to see um, countries make further commitments to tackle climate change. I think we're, we're doing everything that we can as a regulator in the UK to do that in the space that we have. Um, but also, I want, I'd like to see what progress they've made since, that, since the previous COPs and actually really show measurable progress towards those things. That's what we're trying to do with, we talked about the missions and monitoring report, you know, on a, on a bigger country scale, you'd like to see countries actually show what progress they're making against the targets that have been set in previous uh, COPs. I think some of that for the Middle East as well is whether it's decarbonisation of the existing infrastructure or whether it's decarbonisation of potential growth opportunities. I mean, a lot yeah. of the projects that we are working on in the Middle East, whether that's for carbon capture or hydrogen production, they're all about increasing the amount of product available for export rather than necessarily looking at existing infrastructure. So I think there needs to be a little bit of a shift there. But again, much like the UK, seeding the infrastructure on new projects with the ability to then tie into that for older assets in the future. I want to pick up on that point there, Dan, because obviously we've talked about the UK, the US and the Middle East. And you know, obviously there's a lot of interest around the the new build projects and CapEx and areas like hydrogen and CCUS. But in each of those countries, there's a, a large installed asset base. You know, are you seeing enough focus on optimizing existing assets and trying to you know, drive emissions reduction in that area? I think the, the short answer to that, Eamon, I think is, is no, right? So every asset we go into, we take a look at from an energy efficiency point of view, we always find something. We always find something that can significantly be improved, often with no or very low capital cost spend. I think sometimes the, the larger projects are a bit of a distraction. They're the shiny objects that drive the news headlines, they drive the press releases. But actually, the installed base is absolutely key to any geography being able to achieve their net zero goals while maintaining energy production. And obviously, there's a wide range of solutions, whether it's carbon capture, electrification, looking for hydrogen or alternative low carbon fuels. And every asset is likely to have its own mix of solutions in order to provide that lowest cost of carbon reduction or, or to deliver carbon neutrality. The other point I'd make there, I think, is we often see economies, whether it be the UK, the US, Middle East, reacting to policy or reacting to government instruction. I think there's a lot of value to be had in owner operators starting to look at what the plans are for their assets actually in absence of that policy, understanding what the lowest route, the lowest cost route is to reducing their carbon emissions, and then modifying that plan as policy starts to evolve. So it's becoming more proactive and much less reactive. And it's a great, a great point. I think if you look at um, our stewardship expectation 11, which was written for two or three years ago, that makes it clear that every asset has to have an emissions reduction action plan. And I think if you look at the first tranche of those that were coming through, there was a lot of um, aspirational things that, that they could do, but not necessarily the budget that goes behind it. You know, you couldn't really... And what we're now doing is working with those assets. Now we've, now we've got the majority of them is to put real action into them so that we actually expect you, those, certainly those, sim those simpler things that you talk about that help reduce emissions, they should be just done 
as a matter of course, right? It makes business sense to do them. Why, why wouldn't you do them? And I guess picking up on your other point around the new stuff versus the existing stuff, what we see is, is, a, is, a, is a huge opportunity to maximize the use of existing infrastructure. We talk about platform electrification. If that's going to get take off and really become a thing, which is, I think, is vital to, to get to where we need to go, we need to make sure that we are allowing investment in those assets. And that means taking tiebacks to those assets, giving them the longevity to uh, allow for that investment to enable to them to electrify. Because electrification is not, is not easy. I don't think anyone will sit here and say that it is. And we've heard it described as open heart surgery on, on offshore platforms, which I'm sure you hear Absolutely. all the time. But it is doable, right? And we have the expertise and we have the ability to do it. And I think when we talk about social license to operate, you know, we need to get after this and we need to show the best version of ourselves as an industry. Otherwise, we will lose that and it won't be acceptable for it to carry on the way that we are. So those you know, tie-back projects, those expansion projects, the ability to justify the economic life of those assets for a longer period yeah. is absolutely key to being able to take investment in action like electrification exactly. to reduce those carbon emissions. Look, I think there's been a lot of great insights shared there and we've covered quite a lot of ground. And if I was to recap before we move to our final question, it is there's lots going on. There's lots of good stuff going on. There's m momentum. There's lots that we can learn from different parts of the world. But perhaps also a little bit of a call out that whilst there's momentum, those 2030 targets aren't far off and we perhaps need to put the foot on the accelerator. Which leads me to the same question that we're asking all of our podcast guests this week, which is if the theme of this year's Offshore Europe is about accelerating that transition to a better future, better energy future, uh, what does that mean to both of you? I'll, I'll start with yourself, Andy. For me, I think well, we've touched on it both. I think there's two main things. One is around real um, sustained emissions reduction around electrification. If you think, you know, having come from industry and you'll know this better than I do, if you think we're now in 2023, most assets now have a, a three-year annual turnaround. So if you're going to get electrification done by 2030, you've probably got at the most two more major turnarounds that you can do that work. So there's a huge amount of work to do there to accelerate that. Intog is coming to a thing. If people don't know what that is, then go and Google what Intog is. Um, but that's going to come to fruition in the next six months. And we're going to really understand what that means and how wind can integrate with electrification. So I think that's one. I think that will be much bigger when we come back here in, in two years time. And the other one for me is, is CCS, you know, having... Uh, awarded these uh, 21 licenses which hopefully fingers crossed in the next couple of weeks we'll actually officially announce who they all are um yeah i think we need to really see progress on those uh those um uh work programs within those licenses to really start to understand and characterize what the capacity within the uk is and then build out that infrastructure from those track one and track two projects i think that's going to be hugely important and I think they will be much bigger subjects when we come back here in a few years' time, and um, which will be great because it's a it's a great time here to see that energy transition. I think it will be even bigger than in a couple of years' time. Yeah, Dan, I'm going to give you the last word. So I think what I'd like to see is for us to start talking about the dual challenge of energy transition and energy security. Right? For me, they're two dimensions of the same problem: the energy transition, diversity of supply leads us to energy security, right? So the focus should be on how we deliver the breadth of opportunities that are in front of us, how we provide the clarity around the policy and the fiscal regimes to enable that to happen. And that will lead to growth and success throughout the supply chain that we see represented here at Offshore Europe. And that supply chain does need to develop 
and scale up to be able to deliver the plans that are in front of us, not just in the UK, but globally. Gents, thank you both very much for your time. There's a lot of great insight there, which I think will stimulate a lot of ideas for our listeners. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Amy. Hey.